0: This episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. On-demand CEUs are still available for this presentation through all CEUs. Register at allceus.com slash Counselor Toolbox. Counselor Toolbox podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, the world's largest e-counseling platform, providing accessible and affordable counseling services via messaging, live chat, phone, or video. To apply to be a counselor at BetterHelp with no overhead fees or cost, go to betterhelp.com slash toolbox. You can also find a counselor by going to betterhelp.com slash toolbox and clicking on Get Started in the upper right corner. Hey there, everybody, and welcome to today's presentation, Treatment of Persons with Co-Occurring Disorders Based on SAMHSA Tip Forty-two parts, one and two. Now, if you've seen Samsa Tip Forty-two, you know it's a big old book. So, obviously, we're going to break this up into sections. That way, I can hit the highlights of each section for you, and you can get the most out of it. But remember, you can always go to um, store.samsa.gov. Um, that's store.samhsa.gov. And you can order any of the SAMHSA publications or download all of Tip 42 as a PDF. So that's something your tax dollars have already paid for. So if you like reading, you can pull that up. In this hour, we're going to define co-occurring disorders, review the relevance of co-occurring disorder research to clinical practice, and familiarize ourselves with the following terms. Substance use disorders, mental disorders, compulsive behaviors, and behavioral addictions, treatment programs, and systems. So this is kind of an overview or a meta-concept day, if you will. Co-occurring disorders means that a person has a substance use disorder or an addictive disorder and a concurrent mental health issue that is not attributable to the effects of intoxication or withdrawal. So, you know, if somebody is withdrawing from... Uh, For example, benzodiazepines, your anti-anxiety medications, they are probably going to experience a lot of anxiety when they're coming off of that stuff. That doesn't mean they have anxiety and um, benzodiazepine addiction. That means that's a side effect of the withdrawal. Um, If they are taking cocaine or methamphetamine and they're really amped up and really anxious, that could be a side effect of cocaine or stimulant intoxication. So we want to rule out the effects of intoxication and withdrawal. Now, a lot of people, when they sober up, you know, they get the drugs out of their system, still experience anxiety or depression. And that can be a result of, you know, awareness of the things that they did when they were in their addiction Um, it also could be due to neurotransmitter imbalances as a result of using for a long period of time with co-occurring disorders you know the big thing is to recognize that they are there and the book goes into to a lot of detail about differentiating but from a treatment perspective It doesn't really matter. If they're depressed, they're depressed. And we got to deal with it because a depressed, clean person is probably not going to stay clean for very long. And a person who is actively using is probably going to intensify their mental health issues. So, you know, we need to deal with both of them. It's not a chicken or egg. Co-occurring disorder treatment provides concurrent treatment, concurrent integrated treatment for both the mental health and the substance use issue, and if you're in a really awesome program, the physical issues, too. So I want you to think about the challenges that clients with co-occurring disorders present in treatment settings and to clinicians. Um, You know, think about that a little bit while I'm talking, because where I used to work in the residential facility... A lot of our people a lot of our clinicians were trained in working with addictions they were not as familiar with working with mental health issues so when mental health problems would come up sometimes they would get misdiagnosed as someone being resistant or non-compliant sometimes the person who was on duty wouldn't know how to deal with them there were a lot of challenges that we faced the opposite is true or the same thing is true, if you will, um, in a mental health facility. If someone is in a crisis stabilization unit, for example, and they are also detoxing at the same time, you know, detoxing can be a life-threatening event. So clinicians know, need to know how to administer, or the nurses on the unit need to know how to administer the CWA and other um, instruments in order to monitor the detox process. So there are challenges. And then even when you get past that, you know, initial detox period, clients with mental health issues, especially if they have had a history of ongoing mental health issues, they may have an exacerbation of symptoms um, or a relapse of their mental health issue, whatever you want to call it. And that will impair their ability to potentially effectively do their substance abuse treatment. So if you're expecting them to go to group six hours a day, if they are in the middle of a sudden major depressive disorder, they may not be able to go to group six hours a day. And that's not them being resistant. That's not being them trying to be noncompliant. That is them being in a severe state of depression. So how do we handle that? do we let them sleep? Do we? How do we engage them? You know, we don't want other clients to think, well, John's getting to sleep and doesn't have to go to all of his groups. Why do I have to? I heard that a lot. And, you know, you can't say, well, John's got major depression because that's a HIPAA violation. So you have to figure out ways to individualize programs and tailor programs for people and keep all of the clients in the program on board so they're not trying to look and say, well, you're playing favorites here. This person gets this privilege. I want that one too. And and we have to have people understand that each person has their own unique treatment issues that need to be dealt with. Um, Other challenges that it can present to clinicians, again, is a lot of us were trained in one or the other. Most of us went to school for mental health. So we were trained in that, and if you were in a great program and you were lucky, you may have had one or two classes on substance abuse and/or eating disorders, and that was it. You know, there was no substance abuse assessment, learning all the pharmacology and all that kind of stuff. So you're kind of hitting the ground running here and trying to catch up. Um, people who are trained as addictions counselors are often only given very, very cursory training in mental health awareness. Now, in a lot of states, people who are addictions counselors cannot diagnose mental health issues, but they can screen for them and they can say, well, this person, you know, appears to have a concurrent mental health issue. We need to get a full assessment for that done by a mental health clinician. Now, as you'll learn later in the presentation, it is ideal if programs have clinicians who are duly trained, so they can diagnose both, because clients don't like to have to go through two assessments. I wouldn't like to have to do two assessments on the same client. So it's important, when possible, that we have the assessing clinicians be capable of diagnosing and creating treatment plans for both substance abuse and mental health issues. People with co-occurring disorders have multiple treatment issues. You've got the substance, you've got the post acute withdrawal syndrome, you've got whatever the mental health issues are. And a lot of times people with mental health issues, not all the time, but a lot of times they're also on some sort of psychotropic medications. Now, some docs will prescribe psychotropics as soon as the person gets clean and in order to help them stay clean when they get out of detox. Other docs will you know, resist vehemently providing any sort of psychotropic medications until the person has been clean for three or six months. Well, if they're clean, then, and the reason they were using was self-medication, and now they're clean, they're not having anything to buffer against that depression or anxiety or bipolar. So it may be harder to stay clean if they are not medicated. So, sometimes we have to advocate with the physicians, advocate with the program, because it's a programmatic issue if you're working with physicians who are totally unwilling to consider any sort of psychotropics until the person's been clean for six months. You know, I can understand a couple of weeks, you know, maybe, um, but a lot of times it's really beneficial if clients are able to get on even a low dose of something um, right out of detox to help them deal with the extremes of emotions. I think probably at any given time, about 60% of the clients in our program were medicated and the other 40 weren't. And, and that's cool. But if somebody also has a concurrent mental health issue that, you know, you look back over their history and they've had episodes before that could be a relapse trigger, it's important to address that. Co-occurring disorders impact treatment due to the varying course of both disorders. As the substance use improves, you know, as they start working on the stuff that happened when they were in their addiction or led them to their addiction, um, that could push some buttons and trigger some depression, some grief, some anxiety, some trauma. Um, Likewise, people could be, um, as they sober up when they were self-medicating, they may have been self-medicating to, you know, tone, tone down the flashbacks or silence them all together. So when they're clean, they may have a flood of flashbacks and stuff that comes up from PTSD. So there are a lot of things we need to be aware of when we're working with people with co-occurring disorders. And there are a bunch of different strategies for working with people with co-occurring disorders, and we need to make sure that we're willing to embrace all of them, from, you know, regular group psychotherapy to EMDR to medication-assisted therapy to self-help. You know, there's a lot of different things out there that we can use to create a comprehensive program. An estimated 10 million Americans have a co-occurring disorder in any given year, and that is a really low number um, in when you look at other research that's out there. Because that number only uses people who meet DSM criteria. And when tip 42 was done, that was before the DSM-5 when gambling addiction actually made the cut for the DSM-5. So it was really only using addictions that were substance addictions. So alcohol um, and, uh, you know, marijuana and and illicit drugs. It did not include nicotine addiction or eating disorders, nor did it include any of the behavioral disorders like gambling or sex addiction or pornography. Gambling addiction made it into the DSM-5. Sex addiction, pornography addiction, they have not made it in yet. But we know that they tend to be compulsive behaviors, which is the more pr- proper term than calling it an addiction because it doesn't meet the criteria for substance dependence. Um, so, so that's to say that the thing you need to remember is co-occurring disorders affect a lot of people. And it is the expectation, not the exception. And I'm going to say this probably 15 times in this hour. We expect that people come into treatment For mental health or substance use disorders, we expect they have them both. People with co-occurring disorders are more likely to be hospitalized than people without them because the two things are additive. When you have somebody who is clinically depressed plus they're, you know, misusing opiates or misusing cocaine in order to self-medicate, it's more likely that those two things are going to end up resulting in either a severe substance issue or a really severe depressive episode requiring hospitalization. Rates of mental health issues increase as the rate of substance disorders increases. So as we see more people becoming addicted to substances and developing compulsive or addictive behaviors, we also have seen mental health problems increasing, including depression and anxiety. So principles of co-occurring disorders treatment, no wrong door. No matter where someone enters the system, they are able to access help. So if somebody goes to their primary care physician, primary care physician does a um, brief intervention and screening and says, okay, we need to make these referrals. If they enter through mental health, mental health person says, yep, I see that there's some other issues going on here. Here are the referrals we need to make. If they enter through substance, same thing. And even if they enter through the jail, when they go through their assessment at the jail or social services, those counselors are also trained to screen for these things and identify if there is a potential for a prison presenting mental health or substance use, use issue you don't have to be licensed to screen for things you have to be licensed to diagnose and treat so the person you know who is a case case worker at social services or um, a, a corrections officer they can do the screenings during the intake process it doesn't take long Mutual self help is really important in co occurring disorders because, you know, like recovering from addictions, co occurring disorders can be really daunting to recover from, and it's a long term process. Recovery is a lifelong process. Co occurring disorders require integrated care. Like I said, we don't want to have two parallel systems where somebody goes and sees their substance abuse counselor over here on Tuesday, then sees their mental health counselor on Thursday, and the two hands are not communicating with each other. We want everybody integrated, ideally mental health, substance, and primary care. Because a lot of people with mental health issues and substance use issues also have some underlying physiological issues, including, you know, thyroid problems, hepatitis, liver problems, you know, there there are things that happen. Um, so we want to make sure that we've got the biopsychosocial aspect covered. Individualized approaches are used, including psychotherapy, medication-assisted therapy, peer support, and community-based resources. And that's like everything else. That includes financial counseling, um, occupational and educational counseling, access to, you know, scholarships so people can get more training, a variety of things. Anything else they need to meet their needs on Maslow's hierarchy for high quality of life. So remember, the first level is biology. They need food, shelter, water. Then they need safety. Um, They need to feel physically and emotionally safe before they can start working on any of the other stuff. So, And for a lot of people, that's not just for themselves, but they need resources to meet the needs of those that are significant in their life. So if you've got a parent that is trying to recover, they're going to need access to community-based resources for child care, for example, or maybe they need access to resources for transportation to get to treatment. There's a lot of different things out there that we need to consider. You have to look at your own locale and say, what do people need in order to access treatment to regularly come to treatment and to succeed once they graduate from treatment in getting a, you know, paying job that helps them be financially independent and, you know, keeps them from being overly stressed. So there's a lot of issues there. So let's talk about the mental health stuff real quick. There are mood disorders, and this is, we're not going to go into diagnosis today because that's way too, way much more than an hour. Oh, good English there. Anyway. Um. Anxiety. People will come in. Some people have social anxiety where, you know, when they're alone, they typically are fine. But if they're in a crowd with people or if they're thinking about going to a crowd with people, they get really stressed out. And a crowd depends on the person. That could be two or three people or it could be, you know, going to the mall. Generalized anxiety means worrying about a variety of things most of the day, most every day to a level where it's disrupting your daily functioning. So those are the two big ones. You also have panic over there, but we all know what panic is. Depression comes in two flavors, if you will. You have persistent depressive disorder, which back in the day was called dysthymia. And that's more like your Eeyore, you know. You're not really super depressed. You're getting by. You're going to work. You're doing things, but everything is gray. Nothing really makes you happy. You know, you're just getting along. And this can last for years. And people just are constantly going on like that. You know, that, that's a tough place to be. Major depressive disorder is when you have those depressive symptoms and they start interacting with or negatively impacting life um, in one or more areas. And, you know, it's it's significant. This People don't typically experience a major depressive disorder and... Just keep going about life on life 's terms you know they start getting really depressed, really fatigued can 't go to work, um, and they have a hard time doing their activities of daily living now, bipolar disorder combines mania or hypomania with depression, and there are a whole different whole bunch of sets of variations of how this can happen, but mania is is just like what you probably think about when I say it it 's when somebody gets really energized and they don't need sleep you know it's not that they don't want to sleep it's they don't need sleep and they will go for days and days and they just they can't sleep they're they're on a lot of times they have any of those filters for what's appropriate to say and what's not appropriate to say and do those filters are gone they just they're very impulsive they're doing what they want to do they're chasing adrenaline rushes often get doing things that Can be considered dangerous or risky. Hypomania presents more like somebody just being, you know, if they've drank an entire pot of coffee that morning and they are really revved up. People who are hypomanic tend to not be nearly as impulsive, but they can seem like they're like totally driven and have difficulty getting to sleep. And it does start causing problems in interpersonal relationships. Um, And that, so these things occur. And then there's also sporadically episodes of depression or persistent depressive disorder. So bipolar disorder and ADD are often confused with one another, so it's important to do an effective differential diagnosis. And the psychiatrist will probably do this, or the mental health therapist. But it's important to recognize that if someone has bipolar disorder and they're put on antidepressants, it will likely trigger a manic episode. Um, If someone is put on um, medication for bipolar disorder and they don't seem to be reacting to it at all, um, you know, you want to look to see if you've got the right diagnosis or if they react really quickly to the antidepressant and then the, the effectiveness seems to wear off. Antidepressants take about six weeks to get into the system, so you shouldn't really see much of an effect in two or three days, at least two weeks before you start seeing a significant lifting. And there's the placebo effect. When people start taking a medication, a lot of times they'll report feeling a little bit better, but you shouldn't see a complete 180 in three days with something like an SSRI. Um, And and if that does happen, you want to... suspect that the person didn't have unipolar depression. But if they responded that quickly to an SSRI, they very well may have bipolar disorder. So other non-personality disorders that don't really neatly fit into a mood disorder category. ADD and ADHD. We just talked about that. Attention deficit and attention deficit deficit hyperactivity disorder. This can happen or be diagnosed in adults as well as children, and you have a lot of impulsivity, interrupting, inability to wait your turn, and when my clinicians would see this, a lot of times they would identify this as disruptive, resistant, um, or oppositional behavior in clients instead of looking at it and going, you know, is there... Is the person in a hypomanic episode or do they have ADD, ADHD? Let's send them over to get a more thorough workup. Autism spectrum disorders present similar to some of your um, psychotic disorders, sometimes like uh, schizoid, but it's really important to remember that autism spectrum disorders are a spectrum. Some people can have, you know, very little impact from them and be very, very high functioning. Autism spectrum disorders generally do not impact intellect at all. It's more impact sensory integration and people's ability to form relationships, read nonverbals, and feel comfortable around other people. PTSD results after a trauma. Um, There are a variety of different ways people can develop PTSD, but a lot of people in addictions treatment do have PTSD, do have a history of trauma. So we do need to be aware of that because we don't want to re-traumatize them. It's really important um, if your agency's on board, And but even if it's not, it's really important to approach people who are in treatment from a trauma-informed perspective, which assumes that everybody's has had an experience with trauma. That's not necessarily always true, but it's better to be safe and not re-traumatize somebody then be sorry and go, well, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it and accidentally re-traumatize someone. Schizophrenia is kind of basically lumped together your psychotic disorders. Um, and schizophrenia, remember, schizo means break. It means they're breaking from reality. A, someone who is, has schizophrenia, if they are in a psychotic episode, they are going to be in a different reality. And no amount of reasoning or rationalization that you do with them is going to make any sense because they are living in another reality. And the best way to work with them is to kind of step into their reality. I worked with a client who had schizophrenia, um, and, and he was d- just certain that the word the was a message from the devil. And it's really hard to talk without saying the word The. But instead of trying to rationalize with him that, you know, I can say the all day long and nothing bad's going to happen to you or me, um, you know, I had to join him in his reality where that was, you know, that was an alarm when you heard that word and figure out how to approach it from there in order to develop rapport and engagement and get him where he needed to be. Um, Obviously, when he was well medicated, that wasn't near near as much of an issue alcohol induced dementia is something else we need to be aware of with any of our clients. If you're a mental health counselor and you've got a client who decides to stop drinking, you know, they may not have ever presented with alcoholism and that's okay. But if they've been drinking heavily and they suddenly stop, they can develop something called Wernicke-Korsakoff syndrome or alcohol induced dementia. And it's really important that they get care, um, like ASAP, or the dementia and cognitive changes can become permanent. So if you notice that they're evidencing symptoms of significant cognitive decline and and or difficulty with balance, uh, it's important to have that looked at. Obsessive-compulsive disorder is one of those that, you know, we have a hard time with certain behavioral actions or behaviors people choose that ring very true of addictions, like gambling addiction, um, but that's now in the DSM. Um, So we have to put it into a category somewhere. Um, And sometimes people will put it in obsessive compulsive disorders because, for example, pornography addiction. Someone is constantly thinking about pornography, and in order to stop thinking about it, they need to engage in some sort of Compulsive behavior, such as viewing the pornography, um, it doesn't fit nicely into that category because obsessive-compulsive disorder is really more about anxiety. So, if I don't do this, then something bad's going to happen. Um, if I don't check the door, then somebody's going to break in. If I don't check the stove for the thirty-fourth time, you know, maybe I left it on and the house is going to burn down. That's true obsessive-compulsive disorder. Issues with dementia, and go back to OCD for a minute, Um, people with OCD may self-medicate with substances in order to help them feel like they don't have to engage in those checking behaviors or hand-washing or whatever it is. Then there's a few issues with dementia. I mentioned alcohol-induced dementia, but we also have age-related dementia, which is your normal cognitive decline as people age you know that's not something to necessarily be worried about but it's important in treatment planning because people who are of older age may need a little bit more time processing stuff than people who are younger because our the speed with which we process information does decline as we get older people with alzheimers are going to show some symptoms of dementia and this these symptoms will often get worse over time. So if you're working with somebody with Alzheimer's, you have to know how to communicate with someone who has dementia. And people with Parkinson's disease, and you're like, well, Parkinson's disease is not a brain disease. Well, it kind of is. Um, the plaques that build up in Parkinson's Parkinson's disease cause people who are... Um, who have the disease, about 50% of them will have some hallucinations or delusions at some time, and you can see some dementia forming in those people. Not all the time, but it is something to be aware of. If your client has Parkinson's or Alzheimer's or, you know, if you see any other signs of dementia, it is really important to get that checked out so they can reverse anything that's reversible and learn how to deal with anything that's not reversible. And then you've got your personality disorders. And yo, know, I have a whole soapbox about that. But for the perspective of this course, you may have clients that come in with personality disorders. And that means whatever their behavior is, is egocentric. That means it makes total sense to them. They don't understand that they're being um, over the top or extreme in any sort of way. And it's pervasive throughout their life, you know, from. longitudinally, from the time they were relatively young up until now, you know, it's always been present, and in multiple areas, not just at work or just at home, but they behave this way in multiple situations. So cluster A is your autic or eccentric behavior. You've got your paranoid, schizoid, and schizotypal uh, personality disorders. Those are relatively rare. Um, So... I think I've seen two clients in 20 years that had a cluster A personality disorder. This is just something to be aware of. If their behavior doesn't quite seem to fit, if they seem like they're having difficulty interacting with other people, they seem withdrawn, they won't make eye contact, or they seem paranoid, um, refer for an evaluation. We want to rule out schizophrenia um, and anything autism-related. Cluster B, dramatic, emotional, or erratic behavior. This is where your antisocial, your borderline, your histrionic, and your narcissistic fall. Now, a lot of people, a lot of people who come into substance abuse treatment, who are in active addiction or just detoxing and getting ready to start treatment, have behaviors that mimic or that would meet the criteria for these disorders, one or more of them. However, once they are not using, those behaviors go away. So it can't be a personality disorder if, you, if it goes away. It has to be enduring. Um, so be really careful when you're diagnosing personality disorders because once you give somebody a label that's enduring, it can prohibit them from getting into certain treatment programs and send treatment on the wrong path. So make sure you differentially diagnose the substance related behaviors, the addictive behaviors, the stinking thinking, even the criminogenic thinking from a true personality disorder. And then cluster C, are your anxious, fearful? And again, sometimes people with autism spectrum disorders can be misdiagnosed as having a cluster C personality disorder. So we do want to rule that out. Um, You have your avoidant, dependent, and obsessive compulsive personality disorders here. Avoidant is pretty self-explanatory. Dependent is a person who literally just cannot make decisions on their their own. They're paralyzed to make decisions. They're afraid to make any sort of decisions. They rely on other people. And if they don't have other people in their life that they can depend on, they can't function. Um, And it's way more than being codependent. It is much more intense than that. Okay, and then we have addictive disorder. So we talked about the mental health stuff. So if people have any of those, that's the mental health stuff. And then they may have an addictive disorder. In the DSM-5, we have substances that are, can be diagnosed as addictions. And you are looking for substance dependence or substance withdrawal. It's not considered abuse or dependence anymore. They kind of lumped it all together in the DSM-5. And gambling. Gambling is the only behavioral addictive behavior that has made it into the DSM-5. Internet gaming disorder has been made a diagnosis of interest, which means it hasn't quite made it in, but they're considering maybe adding it for the next iteration of the DSM. So that's something to be aware of, that they are adding new behavioral Addictions, But right now, this only applies to internet gaming, not internet surfing, not pornography, just gaming. Um, Things that are not in the DSM yet that we often see meet the criteria for addiction. I mean, you can look through the criteria and go, yep, this person meets all that criteria. Um, Sex addiction, pornography addiction, and shopping addiction. You know, those are three big ones. There are other things, um, but we do see these a lot. Eating disorders and food-related issues are not considered addictions. Um, so we, although they often, very, very often, co-occur with substance use disorders, it's important to recognize that they are not addictions. Um, bulimia co-occurs with alcoholism about 60% of the time. So that just kind of gives you an idea about how frequently they co-occur. So criteria for, for addiction, like I said, a lot of times some of these behavioral things also meet these criteria. So think about them as we're going through them. Use for longer than intended. So if you're using cocaine and you intend to use for, you know, an afternoon and you end up going on a three-day bender, there you go. Same thing with pornography. You know, if you intend to get on the internet for an hour and before you know it, you know, 18 hours have passed, you you've got longer than intended. Spending more money than intended on the drugs or, and this can can also include, and and spending more time than intended, getting it, using it, or recovering from the effects of it. We look at all three things. Um, So you can spend more money than intended if you're using cocaine, for example, and you end up using for three days, you're going to spend more money than you would have spent in four hours. you also have a lot more time invested in it. Failed efforts to cut down or quit. This can be true for gambling, pornography, gaming, or substances. Giving up important activities in order to engage in that behavior. Um, you know, Again, sometimes if, if people are addicted to it, if it gives them that dopamine rush, they're going to be willing to forego other things that are important to them in order to engage in that behavior. Development of a tolerance means what worked for you six months ago doesn't quite give you the same rush anymore. We see that in substances, obviously. We see that in gambling, where people start out and they're happy playing the nickel slots and then they move up and they're playing, you know, much larger um, or more risky games. Uh, The same thing we see with pornography people will start with, you know, middle of the road pornography, and as they watch it more and more, they get habituated to it, and they need something that's more exciting, and that's when they start exploring things that are more risky, more shocking um, than they initially did. Physiological or psychological withdrawal. Obviously, if you quit using a substance, you're going to have a physiological withdrawal um, You know, 99% of the time. With a psychological withdrawal, it means the person becomes anxious, edgy, irritable because they can't access their substance, and it's freaking them out. Um, And we do see this a lot with gambling, internet gaming, and pornography, and and, uh, some other things. And negative consequences in one or more areas of life related to the addiction. So if you're using and it's causing you financial problems, if it's causing problems in your relationship, if it's causing you to be less productive or get in trouble at work, if it's causing you legal problems, you know those are all problems that, and and you continue to do it, then we're starting to look at meeting the criteria for addiction. If you go out drinking and get pulled over with a DUI, not that I'm saying it's a good thing, but if you do and then that's your wake-up call and you don't drink anymore, okay. That's one thing. If you go out drinking, you get your DUI, and that, but you continue to drink and drive You know, after that, then we're looking more at an addiction because you know that the penalties are only going to get worse, but you do it anyway. So when we're considering where to put people in terms of treatment, we look at the American um, Society of Addiction Medicine, ASAM, levels of care. Point five is early intervention. These are your community outreach, your group, um, you know, your two or three times a week groups that people can go to. Level one is outpatient, and that can be up to three hours of outpatient a week, either group or individual. Level two is IOP, which is four, four to 15 hours per week, usually mostly group, and PHP, or partial hospitalization, which is 16 to 40 hours per week again, usually mostly group. Um, Obviously with PHP, the person is engaging in treatment almost like a full-time job. Residential treatment, if PHP is not cutting it, residential is the next step. And this means that there's somebody awake and supervising 24 hours a day, but not necessarily a doctor. Um, Residential is often has a doctor on call um, and medical staff on call, but the Overnight shift, it doesn't have any medical staff on it, or it's very few. Level four is your medically managed intensive inpatient, and this can be your inpatient detox where you've got a nurse that's on duty 24 hours a day and a doctor that comes in every day, um, or it can be a crisis stabilization unit, again, where there's a nurse on duty. You know, there's always medical personnel there, round the clock, 24 hours a day, 365. 365. So determining where to put people, um, there are four quadrants of care. Category one, the mental health and the substance abuse are both mild. So the person is probably going to either go to early intervention or outpatient, and, you know, they can address kind of whatever they, they need to. Category two, the mental health is moderate to severe, but the substance abuse is still mild. So a lot of times they will go to outpatient or even intensive outpatient for mental health, and the therapist will understand and address the substance abuse issues, but they're not significant enough to need a specialty program for substance abuse. Category 3, the mental health is mild, but the substance abuse is moderate to severe. And this is where you often see people who are in IOP, PHP, or residential. Um, and, And these are the things that we treat there. And then category four, the mental health is severe and the substance abuse is severe. You've got somebody who is really in jeopardy of harming themselves either through substance use or because their mental health is not controlled. And this is often intensive inpatient hospitalization for category four. So recovery-oriented systems of care is where we want people to go. Like I said, we don't want parallel systems. So what types of services do we need? to provide comprehensive, continuous, integrated systems of care. That means we all have to be on the same page and communicating. I know it's it's laughable sometimes, but we need to make our best effort. So these systems include substance abuse treatment, mental health services, medical services, pain management, parenting education, financial counseling, occupational and educational resources, and case management in addition to other things, but, you know, those are the big eight that need to be there. So we've talked a lot about co-occurring disorders and mental health issues. Co-occurring disorders treatment means providing concurrent services to meet the mental health as well as the addiction needs of the individual, or addiction recovery needs of the individual. We don't want them to have to go to different places to get their needs met. Now, some ancillary services may need to be contracted out. For example, we worked um, with clients. We were a co-occurring capable facility uh, where I used to work, but we didn't have anybody trained in EMDR. And we occasionally had someone who had intense PTSD who wanted to try EMDR, so we would need to refer out to an EMDR therapist. But we had contacts, and we had that net out there, so we weren't struck, stuck going, I'll know what to do. We always had support and that network to rely on. Co-occurring disorders treatment recognizes the reciprocal impact of each disorder on the other. And and again, true to tip 42, that means mental health and substance abuse, but you know i'm hoping they come out with a new tip pretty soon that also recognizes the impact of physical issues such as chronic pain on the other two issues cuz people when they're in chronic pain often get frustrated and depressed they can get anxious feeling they'll never get any better they can get angry lots of other stuff and they can self medicate the pain and or the mood issues with substances so you know i do see the three of those things co-occurring a lot. Overlooking the mental health or the substance abuse in diagnosis or treatment just sets the person up for relapse. So let's not do that. Co-occurring disorders treatment is integrated and attends to the whole person, not just the substance, not just the mental health, but also their interpersonal relationships and their housing, that whole Maslowian uh, hierarchy. Clinicians have an ethical responsibility to be educated in both mental health as well as substance abuse issues and treatments, even if they're not skilled in treating one or the other. So, you know, maybe you're a mental health clinician and you haven't been trained in motivational interviewing or some of the other substance abuse best practices. That's okay. You still need to know what they are because if you've got a client who's in substance abuse treatment, you need to understand what they're doing over there to understand how it's going to impact your course of treatment. Likewise, substance abuse counselors need to understand what happens in mental health counseling if they're working with somebody who's seeing, you know, multiple clinicians. So there are going to be five more videos in this series, and they will all be on the playlist Tip 42 Co-Occurring Disorders on our YouTube channel at allceus.com slash YouTube. To earn CEUs for this presentation, you can go to allceus.com slash podcastceus, where you can find a direct link to the class associated with this presentation. Alrighty, everybody. Thank you for joining me, and I will see you tomorrow. For part three, well, this was parts one and two because I was able to squeeze them together. So we'll be doing parts three tomorrow. If this podcast helps you help your clients or yourself, please support us by purchasing your CEUs at allceus.com or getting your agency to sponsor an episode. A direct link to the on-demand CEUs for this podcast is at allceus.com slash